This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin the study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that you've given us your word and that down through the centuries you revealed these things to us for our understanding that we may know the purpose that you have given us for our lives and that by living in light of that purpose and living in light of the destiny that you have for us, then we are able to uh, live a life of true, genuine fulfillment and happiness and joy that no matter what the shifting winds of circumstances may bring, we have stability in our souls and happiness and joy that is far beyond any situation or circumstance that we might face. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning and study these things, we pray that you would challenge us and that God the Holy Spirit would make these things so clear to us that we see their application in terms of our own lives, that God the Holy Spirit can use this to produce his fruit in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The other day I was talking with uh, Jim Myers, who is a missionary we support in Ukraine in Kiev, Ukraine, and we were reminiscing a little bit about how fast time goes by, and it was 11 years ago this month that um, that I went over to Kazakhstan with him. He had been working with uh, various churches and groups in Kazakhstan and was having a, a pastor's conference there, and there were men coming from various of the, uh, what we refer to as Ikistans, Tajikistan, uh, all the other uh, uh, st- little stands that are located over there. I can't remember all of them, but they were coming. Some of the men came for two days on a bus, and riding on a former Soviet Union bus is quite something. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, modern Greyhound buses here. So they had their their challenges, and, and they came, and they just we, we would teach during the day in a room that was about the size of uh, half this room, and they had uh, desks lined up, three rows of desks. Half of them were Kazakh speakers. The other half were Russian speakers. And the two air, window air conditioners ran full blast, so we had to speak over those. And um, and the temperature, when it really cooled down in that room, was somewhere around 102. <laughs> of course, there was very little humidity because Almaty is uh, about like Tucson, so... We had our, our various challenges, which always occurs when you go overseas and go on a trip and, 
And uh, the, the first night that we were there, we arrived at 2 in the morning, and they hadn't been able to find a place for us, and they did find this one uh, one apartment that they had finally gone to the church, which was made up of mostly extremely poor people, and offered them $200 uh, a, a night, I think, or for the, for the week, $200 a week for their apartment. That was a huge amount of money. So, of course, those most desperate were the first ones to offer. And so we had this apartment, and there was a... Um, there was a fold-out futon that was harder than any concrete slab I've ever laid down on. And then there were these beds. Those of you who've been to Camp Nile can equate to this. They were just a metal frame, not much wider than this, with a spring that went from one side to the other. So that when you lay down, it sort of wrapped itself around you, and if you weren't careful, you could smother no air conditioning, so the windows were wide open, and the two drunks down below, this is 3 o'clock in the morning, were screaming at each other in Russian for the next two hours. When they quit, we gradually drifted off to sleep, only to be awakened within 10 minutes by the call to prayer from the local musane. So having been baptized into that adversity the first day, I was... uh, uh, uncharacteristically of me, you all know, complaining somewhat to Myers, and in his deep bass voice, he looked at me and he said, Robert, you have to learn to love the battle. (laughs) So that is something that Jim and I say to each other all the time, whenever one or the other is facing some challenges in life, uh, I just say, Myers, you've got to learn to love the battle. And that's what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. We come now to this next little section in uh, Colossians that actually extends down to about chapter 2, verse 3. And in this section, the Apostle Paul shifts from the focus on the sufficiency of Christ that he has been uh, so focused on since verse 15 down through verse 23, and he begins to uh, develop the implications of that, and he uses his own life and his own, ex- his own personal experience as, as an example. He has been focused on, and this is important to remember, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is sufficient not only in the fact that he has done everything necessary for our justification. He has paid for all of the sins uh, in all of human history. The price is paid in full, and nothing can be added to that, but that Jesus Christ has supplied us with everything we need. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, We have been given everything we need to face, to encounter, to surmount any difficulty, challenge, adversity that we might face in life. And he begins to emphasize this in verse 15 as he develops this section focusing on who Jesus Christ is as the eternal second person of the Trinity who is who created everything, who is omniscient, and who oversees everything. 
And, and now he begins to bring that down to a more uh, direct personal level. Let me just read the first three verses here. Uh, as we get into them, we probably won't get beyond verse 24 this morning. Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Now, as we get into this first verse, there are some significant uh, aspects of translation that have to be addressed because of just the way English language works. And because when you read this on the surface, it may lead you to a conclusion that somehow Uh, something was left out by Jesus when he died on the cross. Now, that runs counter to what I just said is the theme of this epistle. Jesus didn't leave anything out. That's not what this uh, this indicates. But what this does indicate is something that is vital and central for all of us to understand in relation to our own spiritual life and how we understand the adversity that we face and how we Uh, learn to surmount that adversity and face those challenges. So Paul begins by saying, I now, uh, now I rejoice in my sufferings. And when he uses the word now, it has, I believe, a temporal sense to it. And he's emphasizing something that is true over the course of his life. There's a couple of different words that are used in Greek for now. Some mean now, right now, and some mean now in this general period. And so this is just a general sense of uh, the word now. And it refers to the Apostle Paul's experience in his Christian growth. And he says, I now rejoice. And the Greek word that is used here is the common word for uh, rejoice, Uh, Cairo. It's a present active indicative, and it is used in the sense that this characterizes the apostle's mental attitude in his Christian life, that he faces many different uh, afflictions. We read a little bit about that in the scripture reading this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and following. But it focuses on his mental attitude. This is what characterized the Apostle Paul, and he faced numerous degrees of adversity. He was arrested many times. He was beaten. He was flogged. He was uh, shipwrecked. He faced many different levels of adversity and opposition, but throughout all of that, he has a mental attitude of joy. And the question we need to ask is, What does it mean by joy, and how can we have that? So he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions for Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, the first word that is used here in relation to suffering is the the Greek word pathema. It's used 16 times in the New Testament. It is a broad word. Uh, Sometimes it is used to refer to the passions of the soul in a negative sense, that is the negative or sinful emotions, uh, those that are related to the sin nature. 
Sometimes they are, the term is used just to refer to the general sufferings, uh, adversity that we all encounter in life. And it, for example, in Romans 1.18, it refers to the sufferings of this present age. In other passages, it talks about the sufferings of Christ, but not in terms of the redemptive suffering on the cross, but in terms of his suffering during his life upon the earth leading up to the crucifixion. And then at other times, it is used specifically to refer to the suffering that Christ endured when he died for our sins upon the cross. The word suffering, if you look it up in English, sometimes seems like a wimpy little word to use for what Jesus Christ endured upon the cross. Uh, suffering, as defined by the Oxford English Dictionary, simply means the experience of being subjected to something bad or unpleasant. And somehow that doesn't quite convey, at least to me, all that Christ endured upon the cross, but yet th- this is the word that is, that is used again and again within, uh, within the Scriptures. It is developed from the verb pasco, which is where we get the word uh, and the, the idea of the passion of Christ. And that term that was used for the film that came out a few years ago is a term that refers to the suffering of Christ and the focus upon uh, what occurred at the time of his crucifixion. Now, Paul says that he presently rejoices in his sufferings and that those sufferings he sees as being for the Colossian believers. They are on behalf of y'all. This is a similar phrase. It is used for Christ dying for you all. It is the preposition who pair, which is a substitutionary preposition, and it indicates that Paul sees that somehow his suffering, the way he handles adversity, is on behalf of those believers in Colossae. There is something relevant about his suffering to their situation that goes beyond the suffering of Christ on the cross. Now, the question we will answer is just how does it do that? In what sense does it do that? The other thing I point out here is in this first, this first clause, we have our first uh, finite clause in this verse, and this is the first thing that the apostle is saying, and he is saying that the believer should also have joy in the midst of adversity. This first line, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, is all governed by that first finite verb, to rejoice. So this expresses the main thought that Paul has in this lengthy sentence, which uh, goes down through uh, verse 26 or 27, depending on the Greek edition that you're, that you're using. Now, the second thing that Paul points out is developed by the next main verb, which is the verb to fill up. So he's saying, first, I rejoice in my sufferings on behalf of you, and second, I fill up. I complete, in some sense, in my flesh, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So this word fill up is a compound word. The root verb is plerao, which is a word that is used in a number of different senses in the New Testament. It's used in the sense of fulfillment of prophecy. It's used in Ephesians 5.18 that we are to be filled by means of the Spirit. 
It is used in some other passages to express the uh, end result of spiritual growth that we have uh, reached a fulfilled uh, state. And so then Paul takes that verb and he uh, puts on the front of it two different Greek prepositions, which intensifies uh, the meaning of this particular verb. He adds anti and ana as two prepositions, basically coins a word here that has the idea of filling up on one's part to supplement something. So he sees that in his personal Christian life, the suffering that he is encountering has something to do with completing something that was begun by the Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering and is in relation to the body of Christ. So he says that he is filling up in his flesh, that is, in his physical body, in his mortal existence. That's how the term is used here. Uh, what is lacking? This is the Greek word, hysterema, uh, meaning a deficiency, a shortcoming, something that was left out. Now, we understand that nothing was left out at the cross, that Jesus Christ uh, paid a complete and full penalty for sin. He accomplished everything the Father gave for him to accomplish. And when he, just before he died physically, he announced, it is finished. Which interesting, I don't have the verse up here on the screen, but in verse 29, the Apostle John says, and when it was finished, and he uses the same form of the verb to, to telesty, when it was finished, Jesus said, it is finished. That repetition uh, flags for us the fact that God the Holy Spirit wanted us to understand that it was completely finished. That word to telesty in the, in the Greek language is in a perfect tense, which means it's completed action. Nothing else is added to it. It is complete, it's over, it's done with. And it was a, also an idiom that was used that would be written on the bottom of a bill of sale once the price had been completely paid. So that you would, we would write paid in full, and in the Greek uh, culture they would write to telesty. And if the bill is paid in full, then there's nothing more that you can add to it, nothing more that you can bring to it. It has been paid completely. You can't add anything more to that. And so the scriptures clearly attest that Christ's death on the cross was complete and total and sufficient for everything related to our justification. Another verse that we see in scripture is 1 Corinthians 113, where Paul is dealing with a problem with the Corinthian believers, and in, in his confrontation, he says, is Christ divided? And then he asks the question, was Paul crucified for you? The, impl- the answer would be no. And the implication from that is then that there's nothing that Paul can do or any other apostle or saint can do for any other believer to add to the work of Christ on the cross. It was complete and sufficient, and there is nothing else that we can do uh, to add add to that. It is also clear in uh, Colossians, uh, just in this chapter and the next, that Christ's death is complete uh, and sufficient, and that he has done everything uh, for us. And we see this in verses 19 and 20, for it pleased the Father that in him 
all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things. It's complete again. There's nothing left out to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then in the next chapter, in verse 15, we read that on the cross, Christ disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. And that whole section from verse 11 to, 13, uh, to 15, rather, in Colossians 2, emphasizes the complete completedness of what Christ did on the cross. And so there really is nothing that Paul can add to the work of Christ on the cross for our justification. So, again, what does he mean? Well, he means we're going to have to learn to love the battle. And we get into verse 24, and in the, looking at the next clause, which says that he fills up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, it's important to note that the word that he translates, of, that is translated affliction here, is not the same word that is translated sufferings. The bo- box on the lower left is this second word, thlipsis. It is a word that is often used in relation to the tribulation period. It is a word that de- describes affliction. It's the word that was translated affliction and persecution in the passage I read in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and following this morning. And it is the word that is used to describe the adversity that every one of us faces on a day-to-day basis in this life. We face difficulties, we face challenges, we face heartache, we face all manner of disappointments, and we also face hostility and opposition to the Word of God and to what we believe in Christianity. And this word is never used of the suffering of Christ on the cross, whereas the other word, which I put up here again, pathema, Bethema is used with a broad sense, including both our day-to-day sufferings as well as specifically focusing on the redemptive suffering of Christ on the cross. But Thlipsis is only used of the adversity we face on a day-to-day basis. It never refers to the uh, redemptive work of Christ upon the cross. So the second thing that Paul is saying here is that the adversity that is faced in a believer's life is an extension of the adversity, the hostility, the rejection, the opposition that Jesus Christ experienced throughout uh, his entire life. It's important for us to understand that as we look at the life of Christ, there were two areas or two categories of suffering that he faced. One category were the redemptive sufferings that he had on the cross when he paid the penalty for our sin. Second Corinthians chapter 5, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. But then there's a second category of suffering in the life of Christ, and that is all of the adversity he faced as he grew up, as he lived, and as he ministered and taught within a fallen world, uh, under the, which is under the authority of the devil. 
and the opposition that he faced, both in terms of just living in the devil's world as well as the active opposition that he encountered from the uh, religious leadership in, uh, in Judea, the opposition uh, that was really empowered, as we know, by uh, the devil and his angels. That adversity is what relates and is what is uh, comparable to the adversity that we face. We do not add anything to the suffering of Christ on the cross for our sins. That was complete. But in his individual spiritual life, he grew to maturity. He had to surmount testing. He had to face challenges and opposition, and he had to do so on the basis of the word of God that was in his soul as a pattern, as a model for us. He does so by depending upon God the Holy Spirit as the one who empowered him in his humanity. Jesus doesn't, didn't face any of the adversity in his life by relying on his deity. That would be a, uh, uh, that, that would be a cop-out. I mean, if, if Jesus were relying upon his omnipotence to solve the problems he faced in his humanity, then he could be no example for us because we don't have that opportunity. We don't have a uh, divine nature. We don't have a second nature that is omnipotent or omniscient to draw on. So Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus faced his adversity in terms of his personal spiritual life by relying upon the same things that we have, that is the uh, empowerment of God, the Holy Spirit, and the promises and the doctrines of the Word of God. And again and again and again, when we look at and observe how the Lord Jesus Christ handled problems and handled opposition, we see that the way he did it was to quote from the Scripture. We can think about going back to Matthew chapter uh, or Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness and he is tested three times by Satan. Satan quotes scripture, or I should say he misquotes scripture, in order to test the Lord. And each time the Lord countered that uh, testing by quoting correctly from scripture. This is a tremendous illustration of what it means for the Christian warrior in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through uh, 18, to use what is spoken of there as the sword of the Spirit. The kind of sword that is mentioned there was the short Roman short sword, the Machaira, which was not like the uh, larger Rampa, which was a sword that was used in a an aggressive uh, uh, attack, but this was used in more of a defensive uh, position. That doesn't mean that there's not counterattack and counterdefense, but it was used more to. Uh, protect the individual in um, uh, in a c- combat situation where he's in a hand-to-hand uh, personal attack. And so this illustrates how the believer is to use the Word of God. We use that when we come under personal attack in order to defend ourselves in those situations as well as to positive, positively remind ourselves of the promise of God. So when Paul talks about filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, he's focusing not on the redemptive suffering of Christ on the cross, but on the pattern 
that Jesus Christ set in handling the day-to-day afflictions and tribulation in life. He then says that this is done for the sake of his body. This is important. Again, he uses this preposition, huper, indicating on behalf of or for your sake. It's in the plural, so it's done for the sake of all of those in the congregation, for y'all's sake. And he says it's for the sake of his body. Now, when Jesus Christ lived on the earth in his physical body, he encountered various levels and degrees of adversity and physical challenges and opposition. But when he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father to await the distribution of the kingdom, then his physical body on the earth is replaced by a spiritual body that is composed of all of those who put their faith and trust in Christ. We know from Scripture that we are identified uh, with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection at the instant that we believe in him. That is called the baptism by means of God, the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, we're identified with Christ and we enter into his body so that there is the universal body of Christ, which is composed of all church-age believers, both living and dead, so that the physical body of Christ during the incarnation has been replaced with the spiritual body of Christ during the church age, and just as his physical body faced ongoing opposition and affliction during his earthly life, so the body of Christ, the believers, all of the saints of the ages since Christ died for our sins, all the saints in the church age, continue to experience that same affliction, opposition, and persecution. In fact, he warned the apostles that if he was hated, then we too should expect to be hated and persecuted uh, for his sake. And so Paul is, this is what Paul is talking about, that what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ continues through the church age as those who are members of his body, which is the church, this is referring to the church universal, not the local church, these are de- developed in the um, in the ongoing history of the church, and this is related to our spiritual growth and maturation. So the third thing that we learn from this verse is that the shared suffering with Christ is inherent in being part of his body, the church. This shared suffering is part of uh, his body, the church. Now, I want to go back, pick up a couple of things I just sort of skimmed past as we went through this, that Paul's focal point here at the beginning is on rejoicing in suffering. Now, that just seems counterintuitive to many of us that we're going to go through uh, hardship, we're going to go through difficulty, we're going to face many different levels of unpleasantness in this life, and yet we are going to, at the same time, rejoice over that suffering. Now, there's two different words that are used in Scripture to relate to this idea of joy. Paul uses the verb here, chiro, which is the verb form of the noun kara. This is the first word that's used here. So joy typically uh, is an English translation of the word uh, kara. 
There's another word that is sometimes used in the New Testament that also relates to joy, and this is the word uh, agaliasis, which means gladness. Now, we think of being glad or happy sometimes. We know that that's a transitory mood. Something happens, and it stimulates us emotionally, and we're excited, and we're happy, and we feel good, and all the endorphins flow, and life is great. But sooner or later, you know, that dies off. We go through a little bit of a slump, and we're not quite so stimulated. And that's the trouble with emotion as happiness I mean, happiness as an emotion is that it ebbs and flows. It is not something that is consistent. It's not something on which we can, we can base any level of stability. So when we come to the scriptures and we see this term joy used in relation to encountering suffering and these statements that we find again and again in scripture about having joy in the midst of uh, suffering, excuse me, we need to ask the question, what exactly is joy? What is happiness? Happiness is something that in our culture people seem to be obsessed about, trying to uh, find happiness, pursuing happiness, looking down every lane, every road to find something that will uh, stimulate them, that will uh, make them happy, that will somehow uh, anesthetize them to the suffering, the pain, the horrors that they see in life. And they seek to be happy through all matter of things, through success, through money, through drugs, through uh, alcohol, through whatever it might be, uh, some way to uh, get away from the day-to-day horrors that can be quite depressing and to have a measure of happiness. So we need to ask this question, what is joy that Scripture talks about? Is it the same as happiness? Is it associated with this euphoric state of bliss? Is it related to our circumstance, or what is it? And the Scripture uses this in a lot of different ways. It is a word that at times is used to relate to our response to circumstances, and that um, uh, that only makes sense. In John 16:20, as the Lord is about to go to the cross and he's giving some last-minute instruction and teaching to his disciples, he says, in John 16:20 and 22 most assuredly i say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned into joy he is speaking about what will take place the next day when he is crucified the world in response to the circumstance of his death will rejoice and in response to the circumstance of his death he tells the disciples they will uh, be sorrowful but, he says, then their sorrow will be turned into joy. This is what will happen after his resurrection. In verse 22, he goes on to say, Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. So he is focusing on the fact that joy does come as a result of circumstances. And in some circumstances, we respond with joy. Those circumstances change. We respond with sorrow. That is just a, a normal, normal use. But there is another use of joy in the New Testament that does not reflect this sort of uh, fleeting, mutable uh, situation. In John 15:11, Jesus said these things, that is, in relation to what he taught in this section of Scripture, the Upper Room Discourse, which focuses on the 
on the teaching of the uh, spiritual life. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you. So here he makes a distinction between the kind of joy that every human being experiences as a result of the uh, a result of positive circumstances to a joy that is given to his disciples to Christians to believers that is distinct from the day-to-day common sense of joy. He says that my joy may abide in you. Now, that word uh, remain is a translation of the Greek word minnow, often translated abide. And it's one of those words that uh, John uses again and again in, in relation to fellowship. It's always used in relation to the believer's ongoing fellowship with God, so that when we're out of fellowship, we're not abiding, we're not remaining, and we don't experience the benefits of our spiritual growth until we uh, are restored to fellowship at, with confession of sin. So he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you. So the joy that is available to the Christian is a distinct type of joy that is Christ's own joy. Now, when we think about the joy that Christ had, it was not a joy that was based on circumstances. It was a joy that was not diminished at any point in his life. It was a joy that he still had that still uh, stabilized him even when he was going through the horrors of the cross. And that no matter what the external circumstances may be, even if it produced sorrow, it was strengthened by a, a foundational joy that never changed. And so the joy that Jesus has is a joy that is immutable. It is a joy that is there no matter what the circumstantial emotions might be at the time. And then Jesus uses this phrase, that your joy may be full. Now, this phrase translated full, again, is the Greek verb plerao. And again and again and again, it struck me as I read through these passages uh, related to joy, is the verb that is most frequently associated with it is this verb plerao, that our joy may be full. God wants us to have a full or complete joy, but not the joy that the world has based on circumstances, but the joy of Christ in us as a result of our learning how to face life from his vantage point and on the basis of the word of God. This joy is produced in us, not naturally, but by the Holy Spirit. Two verses emphasize this. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 13, Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you, there's that word again, fill you with all joy and peace, in believing, that should be understood as by believing. It's a result of our ongoing use of the faith rest drill, trusting in Christ on a day-to-day basis, in a situation-by-situation basis, that God the Holy Spirit fills us with all joy and peace, that for the purpose of that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Galatians 5.22, which speaks of the fruit or the production of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is not something we can produce or manufacture. We can study the Word of God under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in fellowship. And we can walk by the Spirit, but we do not 
We cannot produce fruit, just like if you're a gardener. It's a little rugged if you're a gardener this summer in Texas, but uh, if you are a gardener, you know that you can fertilize the crops and you can water the crops, but you can't make the crops grow. You can't pr- make, the, make the plants produce fruit. You can only engage in watering and feeding them. And there is something that takes over that God built into the plants that then takes the uh, water and the nutrients that it receives and then produces fruit. This is comparable to the role of God, the Holy Spirit. We take in the Word of God under the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God, and then the Holy Spirit takes what we learn, and as we walk by the Spirit, He uses that to produce within us these characteristics, these these uh, uh, character qualities of Jesus Christ that are listed here in Galatians 5, uh, 22 and 23. I just put 5.22 up here because it focuses as the second fruit of the Spirit on joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Joy is produced by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that is humanly manufactured. This is a supernatural mental attitude that is uh, the result of spiritual growth. Joy is also expressed as a, the mental attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ when he's at the cross. So when he faced the most severe suffering, hardship, pain, sorrow that he ever faced in life as he was on the cross and God the Father was God the Father imputed to him all the sins of every human being and during that time he cried out again and again my God my God why have you forsaken me what enabled him to endure and stay on the cross was that he had a mental attitude focus on the end game. And the end game is expressed in this passage as joy. And in, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to follow that pattern, to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher, the completer. Again, there's that concept that Christ did it all. He completed everything. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, the sense is because of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. This tells us that joy is a means of handling and facing and surmounting whatever we might face in life. And let me tell you, nothing that we face, no matter how wild your imagination might be, we will never face anything even remotely comparable to what Jesus Christ faced on the cross. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that if we learn to have the kind of joy that Jesus has, that that joy that's produced in us gives us a forward focus in our lives as we focus on our ultimate destiny with him, and that when we focus on that, then we have a joy that is beyond anything that we face in terms of our uh, our own circumstances. Now, this was part of the physical growth and life of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his humanity. He had to face suffering just as we do because that is what God uses to bring us to maturity. The pattern is described in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. There 
the writer of Hebrews says, but we see Jesus in his humanity. He's made a little lower than the angels for the suffering. And here we have that word pathema, the same word that we had uh, describing the sufferings of Christ, the first word that we had in Colossians uh, 1.24. Uh, he, he, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste, that means to fully experience death for everyone, on behalf of everyone. And then in verse 10 we read, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So it is fitting for him, that is God the Father, to make the captain of their salvation, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect or mature or complete through suffering. This is the category of suffering that Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And it is the same kind of suffering that James speaks of in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. There James says that we are to count it all joy. That's the mandate there. It's a command. We are to count it joy. We are to add up all of the adversity we face in life, add it all up, and the sum total is it is joy. It's a, the term to count it all joy. Hegemai is an accounting term. So we are to consider it or count it or think about the testing, the tribulation, the adversity we face as joy. So whenever we fall into these various trials or difficulties, then there is a way to handle them, and that's expressed in the next verse. It is we can count it joy because we know something. It's a causal participle there because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. But let endurance have its perfect or completing work there, that you may be uh, mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And so once again we see that it is through the process of facing adversity on the basis of the Word of God, trusting in Him, walking by the Spirit, that God the Holy Spirit produces in us a joy, and as that joy crystallizes and grows and becomes fulfilled, reaches its maturity, it gives us the inner strength to face and handle any circumstance of life with contentment, with joy. And so when we think about what it means to be happy, I want to suggest that we think about it uh, a certain way that it's not in terms of what we normally think of as being happy. This is something that ebbs and flows with circumstances. But it has the idea of realizing who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, living in light of God's plan and fulfilling that. Uh, One word that uh, might describe that is uh, fulfillment. We understand God's plan and purpose, and so as we live that out in our lives and as we grow to maturity, living the way God intended us to live, then we experience that sense of fulfillment because we are doing what we're supposed to do. Another word that uh, can describe this is flourishing. Just as a plant flourishes as it is properly fed and watered and it grows and produces fruit, this is a concept related to happiness. It's not emotional. It is a sense of being 
everything God intended us to be in the way God intended us to do it by learning his word, walking by the spirit, and seeing this developed and matured are brought to fulfillment in our own lives. So the Apostle Paul says that he rejoices now in his suffering, and we can have that same joy because we understand the process. He says he rejoices in his sufferings for the Colossian believers, and he fills up, or that is, completes also in his flesh, what is lacking in the afflictions, that is, the ongoing spiritual life-related suffering or adversity that we all face, for the sake of the body, which is the church. And so next time we'll come back, finish up a little more talking about the role of joy and suffering in the believer's life, and then go forward in terms of how Paul develops it as a stewardship or responsibility that God has given to each of us. For that is true. Just because he was an apostle doesn't mean that uh, that there aren't principles there that apply to each of us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that even though we live in the devil's world and that we live with uh, fallen creatures who often fail us and disappoint us, and we live in a time when there is uh, uh, much suffering for many different reasons, that there is an ultimate purpose. We know from the promise of Scripture that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And that as we face the uh, various uh, adversities of life, that by doing so on the basis of your word, we can have real joy that stabilizes us no matter what the circumstances might be. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would recognize that the only way in which we can ever gain favor with an almighty, righteous God, is if we are given the gift of righteousness. And we receive that gift of righteousness only by faith in Christ. Only by trusting in him and him alone can we be justified. Can we receive that gift of righteousness upon which we are justified and receive the gift of eternal life? Father, we pray for those here who are believers that they might be strengthened and encouraged in their spiritual life this morning, recognizing that as we go forward, we will always face adversity, but we can face it with joy and emotional stability and a sense of rich uh, fulfillment as we flourish in our spiritual life and move forward walking by God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.